This is Daniel Hagedorn from Preparing Kids for Life at PK4L.com, and our podcast is for all things parenting. This is day 85 of our 365-day journey with you. You know, my wife and I, we are so passionate about helping parents reclaim their rightful place as the number one expert on their own kids. So our podcast focuses on time-tested principles any parent can learn and apply to build an emotionally safe home and help their children thrive. So we talk about every parent's most basic fears because these have been our fears too. Things like, I don't have what it takes to be a good parent, or I'm not qualified, or I'm going to mess my kids up. You know, as parents, we will do anything to help our kids. And since our ceiling is our children's floor, we owe it to them to always be learning and growing. For 365 days, you've been invited into our experiment, and we are committed to walking alongside your journey as your personal outfitters, guides, and allies every day, every step of the way. So we're continuing our conversation uh, on 10 ways to destroy the imagination of your child. And obviously, uh, the title, uh, this is uh, based on Anthony Eastland's book of the same name, and of course, this is very much tongue-in-cheek because uh, Professor Esselin is, is one of those who cares deeply and profoundly about the direction uh, that the education, uh, training, and development of our children has taken uh, under sort of the current, well, not current system, it's been around for quite a while now, but, but we're seeing some of the effects. We're seeing the impact of, of not truly training uh, children to think for themselves. Uh, not giving them the ability to to really be the the creative geniuses that they were designed to be, and so I, I love his book because what he's doing is he's approaching it from a reverse way and showing you, look, if you set out to destroy the imagination of a child, these are the things you would do. And of course, the shocking part is when you realize that wow, this is exactly what people do. This is exactly what is commonly prescribed as the best way to go about helping our children, not harming our children. And so it's uh, it's been a great experience. Yesterday, we went into the introduction. Today, we're going to go into chapter one. And, you know, this is sort of like, think of this as, as like a, uh, I guess you could say a podcast book club. It's just, I wanted to just sort of go through, I, I I'm hopefully not dissuading anybody from reading this book. I, I hope that you all check it out. It is really worth the read. But I do I do want to kind of discuss about some of the ideas in it because I think they're very important ideas. And chapter one really uh, kind of addresses this, this idea of, um, you know, if we just focus on facts... Um, you know, just just the the core factual truth. Look, there is some value to that, right? I mean, we we don't want to live in this weird fantasy land of our own creation that that's sort of some sort of a, a parallel universe to reality. That's not the objective here. On on the other hand, though, you know, we we can reach a point where we get so factual that we lose the creativity. You know, C.S. Lewis illustrated this really well, um, <clears throat> talking about an artist who painted just for the sheer joy that it brought to him. He 
wasn't trying to be famous. He wasn't trying to to do anything other than just express himself on the canvas. And then one day he met uh, a teacher from the local art school. And the teacher started talking to him about brush length and the type of bristle that you should use and how often it should be dipped in water and the, the ratios for pigmentation. And, and this thing, which had been a passion, which had been an expression of creativity, became so factualized into oblivion that the passion became completely lost, that the interest in painting was just gone. And so I think that's that's one of the things that, one of the concepts that, that Esalen, um, I gotta, I should know how to pronounce his last name. I keep thinking about Esalen or Esalen, but I'm going to say Esalen until someone corrects me otherwise. But he, he sort of uses this, this opening line from Hard Times, which was written by Charles Dickens. And of course, Dickens is writing at the height of the Industrial Revolution. And he's, he's describing a teacher, and, and the teacher is expressing his philosophy in this, in this paragraph. He says, Now what I want is facts. Teach these boys and girls nothing but facts. Facts alone are wanted in life. Plant nothing else and root out everything else. You can only form the minds of reasoning animals upon facts. Nothing else will ever be of any service to them. This is the principle on which I bring up my own children, and this is the principle on which I bring up these children. Stick to facts, sir. Wow. And of course, this is also the kind of education that C.S. Lewis highlights in the Chronicles of Narnia, specifically with uh, a character named Eustace Grubb. And of course, or Grubb, Scrub, excuse me. <clears throat> but in, a, in one of the Narnia Chronicles, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, th- this is sort of, again, this idea is exemplified. And, and so Scrub makes the horrible mistake of stumbling into a cave with treasure in it. And of course, he puts on a golden bracelet onto his arm. And he did this, says Lewis, because in his school, all the boys and girls only read books about factories and electrical output and population density and the like. In other words, facts. Eustace didn't read the right sort of books, says Lewis. So he never knew what to do in the case of dragons and other sorts of eminently practical things like that. This, of course, is the same C.S. Lewis who, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, has four children who enter another universe stepping into a clothes dresser when, as everybody should know, a wardrobe is for hanging clothes in, right? That's the facts. The facts is a wardrobe is where you hang clothes. Nothing more, nothing less. For C.S. Lewis, that becomes the entrance into a magical land known as Narnia. And I think one of the important things to take away, again, we're not talking about creating a a fantasy world for our our children to live in or for them to, to create their own facts for that matter. We're simply saying that when you frame your entire 
educational experience, your entire experience in, in training the mind and intellect and creativity of a child solely based on facts, you are doing them a great disservice. In fact, so as keeping with the theme of the book, this is how Esalen is, is talking about um, this is how you destroy the imagination of a child, right? This is this is how you do it. And so it's interesting because he's um, he highlights this McGuffey's fourth eclectic reader published in 1837. This is this was kind of what school children used prior to uh, the Civil War, Industrial Revolution, and then then afterwards. I mean, it was used a little bit after that. But he says he's talking about that along with precise rules of grammar and elocution. Students are expected to expand what was once quaintly called their souls, contemplating, for example, the meaning of those places where their forefathers fought to secure their liberty. So not just the facts of this battle was fought there and this was the general who fought there, but actually digging into why did those battles matter? What was it that they were securing? What would prompt a human being to risk their lives for a principle? What could, what could capture their heart and mind so completely that they would literally be willing to put their own life on the line in order to secure it? You know, these are the sorts of questions that are raised. Not, well, on this date, this happened. On that date, this happened. Which again, it's not like I'm anti-fact. Please hear me say that. I'm, I'm, I taught history for 14 years. I'm very much about... But you know what? Here's the thing, for example... The, the main value of dates, because you can, if you forget the exact date, you can always look it up. The value of dates, or at least having a general understanding of them, is that you're able to fit historical events into a sequence. You, you're able to have a, a chronology that you create that allows you to understand where and how things fit together. So it's not in and of itself really critical that you memorize dates. It's more about understanding where and how these things fit together in a larger context. So, as Esalen says, if we want to kill the imagination, and we do want to do that, of course, the, the method of sticking to the facts is not a bad way to begin. And that's that's kind of where he's he's starting his his exploration of this idea is going into how the facts interfere. Um, and and he, he's using this, um, this example of, you know, in, in the class, right? He has, he has two children, uh, one of whom is, is sort of part of the, the school mind. He's part of the school system way of thinking, right? And, and he's asked to describe a horse. And of course he, he talks about the the average size and shape, the four eye teeth, 12 incisors, uh, he sheds a coat in the springs, marshy counties, hoods, blah, blah, blah. Like he gives all of these facts about a horse. But this girl, who doesn't necessarily know all of those facts, actually knows a great deal more than this boy will probably ever know about horses because she actually works with them every day. So she understands these horses the experience of these horses in a way that is far more important and far more meaningful than somebody that can simply recite and regurgitate a bunch of facts about a horse. 
And again, you and I both know, what would you rather do? Would you rather study a zoology textbook describing horses, or would you rather get on the back of one and ride in the country, right? I mean, that's that's what we're really talking about. We're talking about facts not being bad in and of themselves, but facts being used to prevent children from gaining experiences because they get all bogged down in learning the facts of something and they don't even really want to try it anymore. You've killed the joy. Like the example I was using earlier about that artist. He went from just wanting to paint and express himself to literally now worrying and stressing about what size bristle to use with this and how much of a downstroke that would create. I mean, and it just killed the joy and creativity inside of him. You know, one of the, one of the things that um, we, we notice is that facts in and of themselves don't, don't seem to rouse the imagination. It's just sort of sitting there like a rock. And again, this is, this is one of the, the worst effects of standardized testing is that standardized testing is really recording down to an exact percentage point how well you can regurgitate information that someone else told you was important. In other words, how well you can recall a series of facts and then check off and fill in the corresponding dot on the Scantron sheet. That's not the same as experiencing something. You know, it's, it's, it's important to know how things work, but not to such an extent that we lose the experience of them. And that, that's what Esalen is, is talking about in this. Um, so let's just, let's just think about it this way. Um, what could be duller, you say, than to memorize the dates of the various presidents of the United States? Not much. So the student, properly instructed, may learn that Franklin Pierce was president from 1853 to 1857. And if the facts stopped there, it would be fine. But they might not stop there. They might learn that Pierce was an unpopular president, which is another fact. And this one is a little more mysterious. In other words, well, what made Pierce such an unpopular president? Why was he unpopular? Was he misunderstood? In other words, were people... Were, were the concerns, was the unpopularity, was it legitimate or was it political? Was it cooked up by his opponent or, or is he actually just that unpopular for a good reason? Why? Right? So it's a fact that he was unpopular, but it's a lot more interesting to explore that than simply go, well, between, you know, 1853 and 1857, that's when he was president. Right? Again, and we're not, we're not anti-facts here. Um, you might read somewhere that Pierce's son died just before taking office. You might hear that a great author by the name of Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote the Scarlet Letter, that he was a, a true friend of Pierce. And all at once, a picture of a rather tragic man emerges. If the student, for example, remembers that the Civil War began in 1861 and that Pierce was a Democrat while Lincoln was a Whig and then a Republican, the mystery deepens because the question starts to stir in your sleepy mind. Well, what made them become members of those particular parties? 
What side of the war did they fight on and why? How did that war affect their thinking? I mean, it's pretty obvious that war affects people. You can't see things that they see in war and not be affected. And obviously, you know, sometimes it affects people tragically. But, but the point is, is it affects you. It's not something you just sort of shake off like dust off your feet. You know, there, there are a lot of, there are a lot of facts we can throw out there, like some of the ones we just did. And the facts point to, yes, some things are just sort of rather dry, but you know, other facts are kind of interesting and they, they lead to more questions, you know? Um, see, the thing is, is that one of the, one of the, products of this is a sense of helplessness, a sense of narcissism, a shallowness, an ignorance. And all of this happens in the guise of education. See, what's, what's better, knowing those dry facts about Franklin Pierce's presidency or understanding some of those other facts? Like, huh, how did his son die? How was he affected by the death of his son? What impact might that have had on his presidency? Those are, again, those are interesting questions to look at, but not when you're buried under a bunch of facts that you have to memorize and regurgitate. And you know, the thing is, is that a lot of times people look at memorization as, as a curse. Well, you know, we're, we're designed to actually memorize uh, when we're younger. We're, we're just download. We don't know how to interpret it and we don't know how to sort it. We don't know entirely how to make sense of it, but we do like just the, the downloading part, the memorization part. And then later on, we have pegs to start putting things onto. We have places where we can anchor in and go, oh, so that's how this is connected to this. Oh, that's how that fits with this. And, and we start to gain a much broader perspective of how things are really truly working. But but again, what's happening is people, oh, memorization is blah, blah. but see what what memorization does is memorization puts information in there that now leaves you free to figure out how that information can be recombined in a creative way without having to go back through your mental data banks and constantly pull stuff up or constantly look stuff up. Now there is some benefit. I mean, I'm not suggesting that we, we just sort of become these memorization machines and we should just memorize every single thing ever and, and all that. No, that, that, there's, there's, there's a balance that needs to be struck here. But what I am suggesting is that memorization plays an important role in helping us learn and expand and become creative. So one of the, one of the things that... Um, uh, for example, this is just how critical memorization was. So crucial was memory to the training of the Greek mind that Plato worried whether writing would actually compromise things. Because if you wrote something down, you wouldn't have to memorize it. And again, we're not saying, oh, well, let's go back to the, just memorize everything and never write anything. No, we're not saying that. But we're just saying like, you know, it's something to think about. It's something to consider how important this was. Now, the interesting thing is that, and I'm just going to leave, leave on this note, 
there's a lot more we can cover in these chapters, but like I said, Mozart, for example, was absolutely a prodigy. There, there is no getting around it. So to some extent, he's an exception. But in other ways, he's not. Um, I mean, this is a boy who had written his first composition uh, at age five and would write his first opera successfully, successfully staged by the age of 14. I mean, clearly, he is a genius. But, but it was a mistake to let down our guard merely because a Mozart comes along only once or twice in a century. We want to assure that none come along at all, and we want to ensure that one of the keys without which Mozart would not have blossomed, the training of the memory, will not be available for the many thousands of people who fall short, but who might otherwise revive a dying culture. I like that point that es that Esalen makes because, you know, he's saying, look, yes, on one hand, we can exceptionalize Mozart out of the picture because he was such a prodigy. On the other hand, he demonstrated the power of memory. When you have something committed to memory, it is then more easily utilized and combined with other things to become increasingly creative. And that is also borne out. So even though we may not be writing operas at the age of 14, we can certainly be doing incredible and creative things. And that is the, I think there's, you know, Esalen goes on and makes a number of great points. It's, it's honestly a fantastic chapter. I mean, just this whole book is, I can't say enough about it. But the main, the main takeaway here is just to really think about, you know, the impact of stealing creativity and stealing imagination from our kids and burying them under the weight of, of exclusively facts. And at the same time, minimizing and marginalizing the power of memorization, which when properly used and properly understood is actually tremendously powerful and is literally a gateway to creativity. Well, Listen, thank you so much for listening. There are literally hundreds and thousands of podcasts out there. You chose to give your time to us. We're grateful for that. Definitely check out our website, pk4l.com, for more resources. And please click on the link in the show description and download your free ebook, Building an Emotionally Safe Home, as our gift to you. Remember, we are with you every day, every step of the way. Until tomorrow, have a great day. Thank you.